0: Já
1: job losses in the armed forces we will speak to the shadow defense secretary jim murphy and ask him how labor would deal with the defense cuts nato defense chiefs meet in brussels to sort out their new command structure another war of words over the falklands admiral the lord west tells us why it's vital to continue to defend the islands and when should a captain abandon his sinking ship This week, thousands of servicemen and women have been told they could lose their jobs. Up to 4,100 redundancy notices will be issued across all three services in the summer. It's the second round of job cuts resulting from 2010's Strategic Defence and Security Review. The Army's been the hardest hit, with up to 2,900 to be made redundant this year. Here's Major General James Everard, Assistant Chief of General Staff, speaking earlier this week.
2: I don't know where the uh, dividing line will, will sit, but I do believe that the proportion of those people who have been made compulsory done will be higher in this tranche than it was in the last. I think there's no one who wouldn't rather be increasing the size of the army by, by 20,000. But that's not where we're at. Uh, this is a process that we have to go through. I think at a uh, individual level, uh, it can be hugely painful and unsettling. And I do believe we've tried to put in place, you know, the mechanisms and
1: the timelines uh, to make this as painless and as efficient as possible. Well, the Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, admits difficult decisions have been made, made, but says they are essential to bridge the MOD's funding gap. Well, I'm joined now by the Shadow Defence Secretary, Jim Murphy, and in the studio is BFBS's Defence Analyst. Hello to both of you. Um, Jim Murphy, welcome to Um, SITREP. If you were the Defence Secretary today, how many job losses would you have been announcing this week?
3: we'd have taken an entirely different approach to this, so I can't say how many jobs I would announce in which week, but what I can say is that, of course that has to be savings, but we would have had a, a strategic defence security review that was worthy of its name. Now, I don't want to be too party political, so just I'll say this at the start and then we'll go into a proper conversation, is that the government, most defence analysts know that the government didn't have a security and defence review worthy of its name. It was very much driven by a desire to save money as quickly as possible to pay down The deficit what we would have done is said what is Britain's role in the world Um, how much would that cost let's have a proper mature conversation about that do we have the responsibility that comes with being a UN permanent security member Um, what does that mean and can we afford it then have a conversation about that and then come to a view do we wish to invest enough to be at the top table or do we wish to be something else entirely as a nation and we that is an issue now it's indeed. entirely we, unresolved.
1: Indeed, we, we know you have issues about the SDSR and how it was conducted. But are you saying then that you do not know whether you would have made any redundancies if you're in government?
3: What we're saying is that there, there are, there are broadly, a bit, there's broadly three sets of cuts being made by the government. The first set that we welcome, which is cutting of tank regiments and things and doing what we can to save money by bringing the men and women home from Germany. That's a sensible cut, and if it makes savings, we strongly support it. There's a second group, like Nimrod. Very difficult decision. There are worries about what it means for a nuclear deterrent, but we can't reinstate that. It's gone, it's been chopped up like a second-hand car and in front of the TV cameras in a p- peculiar way. But so we can't bring Nimrod back. So those are the ones that we are worried about that we can't reverse. And then are there others about um, the pay and welfare payments for our armed forces and the size of our military. And we'd have to set out really what we can reverse there. Um, in advance of the next manifesto. At the moment, what we are trying to figure out is how much is being saved. We don't actually know how much these decisions are saving and the cuts that have been announced this week.
1: Indeed, and you accept that a bankrupt country can't defend itself. How much debt can we afford on defence, do you think?
3: Well, this is obviously a conversation for the the British forces um, radio rather than the Greek one, Um, and we're not a bankrupt country. Greece is a bankrupt country. So you're saying a certain level of debt is acceptable, is it? we're, We're not Greece... And we shouldn't. And I know you're not saying that, but there are people in government who say we are Greece, and if we don't act like this, we'll end up like Greece. I think there has to be. Of course, there have to be savings. Our view is that we would have cut the deficit um, probably um, in half the speed this government was doing, um, and do it more carefully and we think more thoughtfully in a more strategic way. But the the government. Are you saying though, it is it is
1: acceptable to have a certain level of defence debt? And that it's, it's necessary in order to defend the country.
3: It's acceptable when uh, the financial crisis that swept the world for government to have debt. And it was unavoidable for the UK government debt to increase. Really what happened was the debt of the banks, and let's, that's a big a separate conversation, but the debt of the banks basically became part of the government's debt because we couldn't afford the banks to be fall over, so we took on the responsibility. As a consequence, government debt increased and therefore there has to be savings made. So we're not bankrupt. We're nowhere near being bankrupt. Even though I don't agree with the government's policies, I'm never going to suggest anything of that sort. But of course there has to be some savings. We're not disputing there has to be some savings. But I think your listeners will appreciate I'm not in government. I don't have access to the government's finances. And the government aren't even telling the forces how much this saves. So I think pretty fairly I can't say how many Gurkhas, how many infantry privates. But in a general sense we would be going much more slowly than the current Indeed. government is.
1: You have said that you would accept £5 billion worth of cuts that the government has announced in its SDSR and that it's making. Um, if you were to come to power in a year's time, say that did happen, um, which of those things would you be reversing? I mean, you did mention paying conditions. Is that one of the major things you would change?
3: Well, I think we have we have real worries about the way in which the government's changed the pay levels and the benefit payments for our forces, um, their families, our veterans, and those who have been injured, and sadly those who, the the wives and partners of those who have been lost. And what they've done, it's a pretty technical switch from, as you'll know, from RPI to CPI, but it's a lower level of increase. I mean, and those are the sorts of things we need to look at, is that can we afford to reverse that? That's the sort of thing that we will have a real hard look at.
1: Everybody saw the former Defence Secretary trotting out again and again when you, when you raised your concerns about the SDSR, that it was Labour that put them in this situation. Um, what would you do differently if you came to power to make sure that the kind of mess that's emerged in defence won't be repeated? What have you I learnt?
3: I think one of the big things you learn from your time in government is that uh, no one is a monopoly on the wisdom of getting it right all the time, and one of the big things we probably should have—we should have got to grips with much earlier—but it afflicts all governments. Um, so I'm not even going to k- attack this government on it. Is, is defence procurement, as you know, there's a conspiracy of optimism that pervades the process, the contractor, the MOD, the forces, the politicians, in a sense that this time we'll get it right. There needs to be enormous overhaul of the way in which we procure military equipment and big capital projects. We made some changes when we were in power, but we didn't go far enough. And that's been true throughout time. But let's once and for all make dramatic changes, free hopefully from the party politics, so that what the taxpayer invests in taxpayer gets on time, on budget, and our armed forces get the best in the world.
1: Sounds good. Christopher Lee, um, do you think that what you're hearing from this government and obviously the Shadow Defence Secretary is convincing that defence can be sorted out? That there is a willingness now to recognise the problems of the past and to move on and sort it out once and for all.
2: I think one of the important points that um, Jim Murphy was making right at the beginning is that government, not the MOD, but government has to decide its place, how it imagines it might be in, say, 10, 15, 20 years' time in the world, what its role will be. If you look at the first part of the 2010 Defence Review, the first part was the strategic outlook, which didn't quite match up, and it certainly didn't match up with the cuts that were made later, which you know most people would say for economic reasons. So you've got to actually say to yourself, what's going to be different in say, 10, 15 years' time, because any cuts, any changes you make, for example, um, as Jim Murphy was saying to defence procurement, uh, might take 10, 15, 20 years to actually come through. So when you say, do we want to get into another Afghanistan? Are we willing just to stick to so-called asymmetric war? Do we have an idea? For example, force projection. If you get rid of uh, an aircraft carrier or you don't have one for a certain time and it may not be say 15 years before you get one your whole thinking uh, might be changing and therefore you have to say we want to do so and so oh this is where we imagine our places in the world therefore you go to the mod and you say look what are you going to need what will actually make our vision, our policies come true? And that is where the balance has to come. I don't think the balance is there at the moment.
1: Indeed. Um, you talk about a force protection, Jim Murphy, and we're hearing that the Prime Minister has been drawing up plans, that if necessary, to deploy more military people to defend the Falklands, if that's needed. How would you be handling that situation at the moment?
3: I think that, first of all, that the United Kingdom has both a right... And a responsibility um, to maintain the status quo, the constitutional status quo, and the relationship between the United Kingdom and the Falkland Islands. And that uh, I do worry that this, you know, at distance, you know, war of words uh, um, that some in the media and others are um, talking about, is unhelpful. I think our relationship with Argentina has changed. Of course, there's a different, perhaps there's a different tone in the past few months coming out of Buenos Aires. Um, I think it's unlikely that we're going to see a repeat of um, the kind of previous degree of conflict or disagreement. But we have a responsibility across parties, and I'm not going to criticise the Prime Minister at all for this. Um, he's right to say, as he does, um, that we will, we would ensure that we have the necessary um, capability to protect the Falklands from whatever threat, whether it's in the future a natural disaster or whether in the future anything else that may affect those, the people of the Fultons. If the people of the Fultons wish um, the constitutional arrangements to be altered in the future, that's up to them. But until such time as they express that view, then they remain, uh, the constitutional arrangement will remain ch- unchanged.
1: Jim Murphy, the Shadow Defence Secretary, thank you very much for your time thank today. Thank you. Sit Rep with Kate oh. Still to come, David Cameron sends a strong message to Argentina about Falkland sovereignty. We talk to Admiral the Lord West. And when should a captain abandon his ship? It appears the captain of the Costa Concordia left long before most of his passengers. rep. NATO defence chiefs are meeting in Brussels. Operations in Afghanistan and Kosovo are just some of the topics being discussed. BFBS reporter Tim Cooper is there. I spoke to him earlier and asked him what they'd spoken about so far. Well,
0: it's the 166th of these uh, chiefs of defence meetings of this military committee, and ground covered so far has been quite wide-ranging. Of course, they've been talking about Afghanistan uh, and the vital phases, they see it, for NATO of transitioning uh, the country of Afghanistan, changing over the power there from very much the west, ISAF, and of NATO, of course, uh, controlling things to the Afghan forces. So looking at how that's going to be done, but also talking about other NATO ongoing operations such as Kosovo, and, of course, reflecting on what happened last year with Libya operations.
1: And what have they been talking to Russia about?
0: Well, Russia is it's a fascinating example of how things have changed. I mean, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to go to a Russian-held press conference in NATO HQ, which is exactly what I did yesterday. It's the NATO-Russia Council, and it's its a forum, if you like, to get the two sides together to talk about how they can cooperate uh, more greatly in their military operations. And lots of positivity coming out of that yesterday from the Russian General Makarov. And he was telling me that they've agreed a lot of areas of cooperation, things like anti-piracy, logistics, and even some joint training exercises, which will hopefully be happening in 2012. But it's not all positive, of course. There's still a lot of uh, angst between these old two two old Cold War adversaries and there's a lot of concern about the sighting of missile sites uh, in Europe uh, which Russia once sorted out before it says it can move cooperation on to a next level.
1: I understand they've also been talking to Mediterranean nations.
0: Yes, um, the Mediterranean Dialogue Partners, as they're known. That was the first meeting that took place here yesterday, today. We think of the Mediterranean in in Britain as all the sunny countries we go to on holiday. Of course, it's all the Arab countries uh, facing northwards, if you like, Algeria, Egypt, uh, Tunisia. They were all there yesterday at this high-level meeting. I think very symbolic that this was the first session for the new chairman to preside over, particularly because we've seen so many changes in those countries. And really a chance for NATO and those Arabic countries part of this Mediterranean dialogue group to get together and talk about further moves, particularly following on from the Libya campaign, of course.
1: And today's meeting is all working towards a new command structure, isn't it?
0: Yes, I mean, NATO has known ever since the end of the Cold War, if you want to go back that far, that it has to change and reposition itself globally. What is its role? And it's done that successfully following the Cold War. It's now having to do that again. There's been a lot of criticism of NATO over the last year. Everyone remembers Robert Gates' comments back in June uh, when he really slammed a lot of the NATO partners for not putting in uh, military troops, not being willing to do the war fighting, in effect, but being quite happy to do it a little bit of peacekeeping, also not being willing to put in as much money. So NATO has identified that it needs to change and needs to work through ways forward in the future. So they've been talking a lot about that, particularly in the bilateral meetings that have been going on on the sidelines. And It's all building up, of course. These are military people at these uh, these meetings, 67 countries represented here, all the military chiefs at very senior level, but they're not of course politicians. And the Defence Secretaries uh, meeting of this, this sort of council but with Defence Secretaries is taking place in February, and that's all building to a big conference summit that's taking place in Chicago later this year where those sorts of decisions can be put through.
1: Tim Cooper reporting from Brussels. Uh, Christopher Lee, as Tim just mentioned, the NATO defence ministers will hold a conference in Chicago. What's likely to happen at that?
2: It's a mood thing, really. I mean, there will be the usual things, as Tim said, about sort of approvals, but they'll all be done beforehand, and that'll be just what the Americans call a gold pen affair. You just sign on. So what's already been decided will just be signed off, basically. Yeah, that's it. Most importantly, the Americans now see that NATO has to devise a role for itself, and it has to say what it can do. And so if you've got more than 20 nations, it doesn't mean to say they all have to sign up for the same thing, because most of them can't do it. You know, most of them are very small, some of them hardly got any troops at all, for example, and the political pressures.
1: Is it possible to have an agreement then?
2: Yeah, it is, because you end up with something quite different. NATO was formed, if you believe Pug Ismay, who was the first NATO Secretary General, he said NATO was formed to keep the Americans in, Europe that is, the Germans down and the Russians out. You know, the, and the cold, Russians are in now, And the really? Cold War yeah. thing has changed. What the Americans are looking for and what the Americans will get that in future NATO operations, and in future big operations like Afghanistan, if there were to be, it's going to be what's known as a coalition of the willing. In other words, those who are willing to come on board in a big way, that's okay. And don't lambast the, the rest of NATO because it can't do it.
1: Indeed. On today's meeting in Brussels, the Defence Chiefs have also welcomed the new chairman of the NATO Military Committee, General Knud Bartels. What do you know about him?
2: Um, He's Dane. Uh, he is a very, very, he's got a good military mind. He's extraordinarily well versed in the idea that if you want to do something, suppose you're going to take, going to take a hill, let's say, mm. where are the logistics behind you to keep it going? And one of the things, for example, in Libya, in the operation over Libya, there was a great danger of actually running out of ammunition. And Bartels, sitting there as chairman of the military committee, will not make any great decisions. But the chairman of the military committee, his job is to pull together all the political thoughts and balance them with the military capability. We were talking earlier about, you know, Britain decides what it want to do in the world. Therefore, it goes to the military and says, can we do it? That is Bartle's uh, uh, role. And I think he's probably going to prove one of the best chairman of that military committee for some time.
1: This is BFBS. Sit Rep. Britain and Argentina are having another verbal battle over the Falkland Islands. Yesterday, David Cameron accused Argentina of colonialism.
0: We support the Falkland Islanders' right to self-determination. And what the Argentinians have been saying recently, I would argue, is actually far more like colonialism. Because these people want to remain British and the Argentinians want them to do something else.
1: The Prime Minister said he wanted to send a strong message about the islands following months of escalating rhetoric from Buenos Aires. In response, Argentina's Interior Minister said the Prime Minister's comments are totally offensive. Earlier today I spoke to former First Sea Lord, Admiral Lord West, who received the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions during the 1982 Falklands conflict. I asked him how under threat he considered the Falklands to be at the moment.
4: I think the the first thing I would say is that I'm, I'm quite... Um, disappointed by the Argentinian pressure and rhetoric, the fact that instead of trying to accommodate the Falkland Islands and the Falklands and to deal with them and make relationships closer when one looking to the future, that clearly they are aiming for yet another showdown, and I think partly this is for their own domestic political reasons. Um, and that's extremely unfortunate. And of course, they've taken this issue to the UN. They've included other states within South America, many of whom actually are friendly towards Britain, but obviously don't want to upset the Argentinians too much. So they're in a difficult position. Um, and there's no doubt within the Argentine that from the day they're born and through all their education and schooling, they are taught that the Malvinas, as they call the Falklands, are theirs. So this is a a big issue there. And although we've taken um, sovereignty off the agenda, the Argentinians clearly haven't.
1: What exactly, you mentioned the domestic political reasons, what exactly do you think the Argentines want to get out of this?
4: Well, their economy is not going very well. There are a number of other issues politically um, that are causing problems. Obviously, all politicians always want to be re-elected. Um, and, of course, the. I suppose one of the things that's really making this move now is the fact that they've just... Uh, found the oil and gas that they thought they would find uh, in reasonable quantities. I think 500 uh, million barrels, uh, they assess, has been discovered by, uh, I think it's Rockhopper who's been doing the drilling. Um, clearly, the Argentinians see this as something that, that would help them financially, dramatically. And, of course, they believe um, that, that it's theirs. Um, I'm, they're wrong um, because there's no doubt whatsoever the Falkland Islanders um, do not wish to belong to the Argentine and the UN states quite clearly that uh, the inhabitants of territories should have right to their own self-determination.
1: You mentioned the rhetoric earlier. What do you think of our Prime Minister's comments accusing Argentina of colonialism?
4: Well, I think he was referring to the fact that they are, they've are they forgotten that the UN clearly accepts that any country if it's occupied, if people are living there, the people who live there have the right to uh, pick who they belong to, which country they belong to, and their future. And the Argentine are completely trampling all over that. And I think that's what he's referring to. I think that he's, in a sense, almost been forced to come and say this because a number of commentators have actually pointed out to him um, that this rhetoric from the Argentine is is building up and building up. And, of course, we have this dreadful experience of 1982 when really um, a number of agencies in this country and, uh, and the government ignored um, the build-up of the threat to the Falkland Islands.
1: The government is sending a strong message to Buenos Aires. Do you think it's enough?
4: I think it's important to send that strong message. Um, I think there has to be more. I think uh, although the Argentinian military is not particularly powerful at the moment... Um, uh, and I don't think they intend to use military force at the moment. Um, there is no doubt that if there was an opportunity, there are some people within the Argentine who might be silly enough to push the use of force. and we need to send a very clear message um, that you know we are we are not willing to accept this. Uh, our problem is that the cuts in the strategic defense and security review, particularly, the aircraft carrier and Harrier aircraft carriers, has reduced our options should such a thing happen. Basically, we can't retake the islands without carrier air. And so there is a gap there, which means now we are totally reliant on defence of the islands, which is the prime way we intended doing it, with the forces in place. So they have to be reinforced to a level where we're sure they could stop the Argentinians if they did a stupid attempt at a coup de main.
1: So you're, you're convinced that we couldn't retake the islands were they to be invaded. Do you think we are defending them well enough if we need to?
4: As I say, I don't believe we could retake the islands without carrier aircraft. And it will be much harder uh, on this occasion because um, there is a big airfield, courtesy of us, built on the Falklands where they would be able to face, place their fast jets. So it would be a trickier problem. We'd have to It it can be done using Tomahawk land attack missiles, we can make the airfield unusable for them, but then we need carrier air actually to an invasion and an amphibious operation and everything. So, yes, we've removed that capability until the new carriers and their fixed-wing air are available. Uh, I don't believe that we could retake them without those, I I believe. Um, In terms of what's there to defend it, I don't think really I can comment uh, too thoroughly on that. I I do believe now that the government and MOD and people are aware that this is a real issue. I don't think they were really thinking about it at the time of the SDSR. Um, A number of people, I'm one of them, have rattled the cage on this issue. Some have rattled it much more. And I think therefore there is now a government focus. And I assume that the MOD is making sure that there are adequate forces there to stop the Argentinians doing something very stupid like a coup de main And I therefore think it would be unlikely as long as that's been done.
1: As someone who was there almost 30 years ago now, um, how do you feel about the current difficulties that we're having ongoing despite everything that you went through?
4: I I, I feel, I I have to say, rather disappointed and depressed by the Argentine. Um, the, The... Recapture of the islands, uh, and we lost a you know we lost a considerable number of people in a very short time. Um, I think it took something like eight years in the Afghanistan to actually lose the same number as we lost in a matter of three weeks in the in the Falklands, um, uh, and and so uh, you know a, a loss of blood and treasure from our nation, and quite rightly we gave freedom back to the people of the Falklands. But what we did for the Argentine was basically forced the uh, collapse of the Junta, who were treating the Argentinian people in the most dreadful and appalling way. And the Argentine had become much freer and a nicer country. And there seems to be no reflection of that. And I think the Argentinians, if they had opened hands of friendship and tried to get alongside the Falklands, accepted that their people there didn't want to be in the Argentine, tried to open up links, been really friends with them, you know, you, who knows what would happen in 50 to 100 years' time. You know, that's the way to do things. They might well have had a uh, capability of having facilities for the oil and gas that's in the Falklands, based in the Argentine and things like that. I think they've been very short-sighted. Uh, and as I say, I feel rather dis- depressed and disappointed about that.
1: Admiral the Lord West, uh, Christopher, what do you think uh, about what he's been saying? Could we all have been friends with Argentina had they taken a different approach? Not
2: if you are in politics in Argentina, you couldn't. You've got to keep these things going. Um, in, in, some, in some historical way, the Malvinas, to the Argentinians, is the six counties as far as Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. Is How many concerned. Argentinians
1: would really want to live there, do you think?
2: Uh, some do. Some actually do there. No, it's not a question. I mean, they'd like the oil, wouldn't they? But you see, where, where you have to put this into context... One, you have the politics of Argentina, which has been in, in some state of a flux since the Galtieri regime of, of 82. And that is 30 years. It still had the difficulties. The second part of it is there is no way in which any leader or a potential leader in Argentina could not turn around and say, give us back the Malvinas. It is as simple as that. So you have these periods like now, um, and Prince uh, William going down will cause even more sort of uh, difficulties as far as the Argentinians are concerned because they'll say, we have to say something. We have to say this is provocative when it is not provocative or not meant to be. But the important thing is, give it, say, this time next year. Uh, we probably won't even be mentioning it. You really think so? And, no? well, you you'll have to you'll put it in we you No, know, we're talking of a period of 30 years since Galtieri. And how much this has come up and how much the difficulties have come. I think where uh, Alan West has really got this on, on the money is that it, it would be jolly nice to think that you could have come to some arrangement where it's joint exploration or whatever, um, but the bottom line is, as Jim Murphy was saying at the beginning of the programme, until the, um, the Falkland Islands themselves change their mind about sovereignty, about their own position, then as far as the British government, nothing's going to change, and nothing therefore will change as far as the Argentinian Mm. uh, government.
1: Well, Lord West was captain of HMS Ardent, which was sunk in the Falklands conflict, so he experienced the horrific crisis situation of having to abandon ship to save as many lives as possible. The manner in which the captain of the cruise ship Costa Concordia exited his stricken vessel is being questioned and will be the subject of a court case. So, Christopher, should a captain always be the last off?
2: Yeah, Okay. it it should be, but it depends on the time. And I think that if you lay down uh, hard and fast rules... You cannot imagine what the situation might be. But here is two things to remember. One, the difference between uh, a military vessel, say a, a, an RN frigate, and a merchant ship. Mm-hmm. There are different ground rules Which are? Uh, for, for these. Well, the, the ground rules and in training and exercises all, all the time with the, with the Royal Navy ship, uh, the rules are quite, very, quite simple. And that is the captain, unless he delegates to somebody else, has to make, he's still in command of his ship, until it's not possible to command it, in this case, and let's not get into whether he was right or Roberto uh, Bossier, who was his, uh, who took over the command, and he said this was a disgraceful man and, and those situations. What you do, and I've been in something very similar to this, where we were on standby to abandon ship, and that is you stay there you have to make sure the system is working. Is damage control system? Do we know where people are? Do we know what the numbers are? Do we know what the possibility in the state of the ship, even just taking on water, do we know what rescue uh, attempts are being made? And are we better actually staying here? And the skipper or captain, or master of the ship in this case, stays with it because it's his ship.
1: You said that he has to stay there if he can command the ship still. What if he's in a situation where he knows that um, the people who are still on the ship, he cannot save, and he, he suspects he will die if he doesn't save himself? What, is there an answer to that predicament?
2: No, there isn't, is there? I mean, not, not at the time. You see, um, somebody was saying to me, to me this morning, there's a bit of him in everybody indeed you know what you're supposed to do you know what you should do Uh, but there's something in you I mean the idea that he tripped into a lifeboat was a bit far-fetched or whatever I mean he hadn't got his sea legs yet but the the biggest problem is the individual and it's the individual who takes the the decision and one wonders why he was ever captain of this ship in the first place if so many people know that he was the wrong individual
1: christopher thank you very much that's all we have time for this week my thanks to all of our guests of course let us know your thoughts on today's program you can follow us on twitter tweet us at bfbs Sitrep, or send us an email the address is sitrep at bfbs.com we're back at the same time next week do join us if you can thanks for listening i'm kate shabbo and bye-bye for now